front. They're cool. We'll be good. But this morning we find ourselves in James chapter 1. And we're going to be looking specifically at verses 9 to 12. Paradox is an important tool for those who are teachers and writers. Specifically because of how well paradox helps people to think. There are, right, there are two sides where there's seemingly opposite ideas or thoughts that kind of come together to make one coherent thought. It's paradox. Let me give you a couple of examples. I am a nobody. I am nobody? Doesn't quite make sense, but you understand what I would have meant if I told you I am a nobody. Or in order to be a follower, or in order to be a leader, you need to be a follower. Or when somebody says that the silence is deafening. Or we learn from history that we do not learn from history. Or classic literature, Tale of Two Cities, begins, it was the best of times, it was the worst of times. But the Bible is also riddled with paradoxical thinking, either explicitly or implicitly as well. In order to be free, you need to become a slave. In order to live, you need to die. The healing begins when you're truly broken. Loss is gain. To be low is to be high. And in this morning's brief text, James calls the brother or sister in Christ that is not financially wealthy to boast. But to boast specifically in something, his exaltation. And then on the other side, he is referring to what I believe is a rich brother or a rich sister. And he calls them to boast, but to boast in something that doesn't seem like a rich person should be boasting in. And that is in their humiliation. These are paradoxes. They're meant to cause us for, to stop and to think a little bit because this is not the usual way of it, is it? That when you think of somebody who is very poor, you do not think of them boasting in anything. When you think of somebody who is rich, you do not think of them as somebody who is boasting in their humiliation. Yet this morning we see these paradoxes that James is using in order to teach us a very important lesson. He is calling the poor man to properly evaluate himself in light of who he is and what he has in Christ, not in who he is and what he has in the world. And he's calling the rich man to evaluate himself in light of who he is and what he has in Christ, same as the poor man, and not through the eyes or the lens of the world. And this call extends to us all this morning, this call for biblical self-evaluation. The poor man needs to evaluate himself, not based on the circumstances that he finds himself in as a poor man, but as a brother in, in Christ who loves God and will one day receive a crown of life. The rich man needs to evaluate himself in the same exact way, not based off of the circumstances that he finds himself through God's, himself through God's good providence, but as a brother who loves God and will one day receive a crown of life. And I want that to be very clear to you because as we go through verses 9 to 12, I don't want to kind of cloak those first few verses and then throw the dagger in at the end. I want you to know what the dagger is. And the dagger is in verse 12, what he says, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. So ultimately, what matters in the eyes of the world, like poverty, like riches, does not ultimately matter 
in the scheme of eternity. What matters for the rich or the poor is whether or not they love God. And if they love God, they will receive a crown of life, eternal life. So now that I've given you all that up front, let me show you how I've gotten there. Look at verse 9. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. So this is the self-evaluation of the poor. That the lowly brother boasts in his exaltation. I hope you took the opportunity this last Tuesday to vote. Anytime there is a time to vote, there is inevitably discussion about the economy and how the economy is doing and whatever person we're going to put in office that is going to bring about a good economy. And usually the context with the economy is always connected to the discussion of the middle class, right? That the politicians are always promising that the middle class of America will will grow and flourish and expand and be strong and have money and all of the rest and all of the rest. And this idea of a middle class implies, of course, that there is an upper class and that there is a lower class. And many Americans identify this. No doubt you probably identify yourself in one of these categories that you probably would throw yourself into the context of the middle class somewhere. So most of us identify with this, but then even within being in the middle class, if that's where you put yourself, there's the thought of, are you in the upper middle class or are you in the lower middle class and everywhere in between. But in James's day, when James is writing this in the year 40-something A.D., There's really no such thing as a middle class. There were certainly merchants and artisans who had formed somewhat of a middle class. Jesus' family, which would have been, remember, James' family too, James and Jesus being brothers. They would have likely identified probably with this sort of middle class. Being skilled in a trade like carpentry was really no small thing. James and Jesus both being trained as carpenters by their father Joseph. But the economy in these days would have looked really a little bit like a Christmas tree. You would have had the the extremely wealthy at the very top of the tree, and it would have been a a very small part of the tree, all of these wealthy people. They would have included people like the bureaucrats, people like the aristocrats, and even some of the Jewish religious leaders who would have been born into money and would have been very wealthy. And that would then funnel down into a very small middle class of craftsmen and merchants. But then... The Christmas tree, as it were, would really bottom out with a large, large lower class. And so for James, what he is specifically talking about in our text this morning, about the rich and the poor, is that this little pocket of the wealthy at the top and the massive poor people at the bottom, and it's to this large majority of people that have nothing in regard to land, They have nothing in regard to money. They have nothing in regard to skill. They have absolutely nothing in the eyes of the world to offer the world in any regard. And what does James tell this large majority of people to do? He tells them to exalt. This should be as stunning as what he says in verse 2. When he says, again, kind of a paradoxical way of thinking about trials. Count in all joy when you enter into trials of various kinds, right? This paradoxical thinking. Those things don't seem to go together. And yet here he's continuing on with this paradox. A poor man or woman boasting in their exaltation. This mass of people at the bottom of that tree, as it were. By now you should be wondering what it would mean to boast in our exaltation. And I think that James is likely alluding back to the prophet Jeremiah, where Jeremiah says, Thus says the Lord, 
Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But listen, but let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declare the Lord. So, so why can the poor man boast in his exaltation? Because he understands and he knows God. That's why he can boast. Turn over in your Bible, James, James chapter 2. Just turn a page over to James chapter 2. And look what he says in verse 5. He says, Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? In connection with our text back in James 1, this is our theme, isn't it? This is the paradox of biblical self-evaluation. That you evaluate yourself based on who you are and what you have in Jesus and God, not based on what, who you are and what you have in the eyes of the world. And so James chapter 2 verse 5 saying, It is the poor in this world who are the rich in faith. It's the poor in the world who are heirs of the kingdom. It's the poor of the world whom God has set His love on. Why? Why is this the way of it? Why does it seem like God is, is, is going about and giving faith to the poor and making the poor sons and daughters of God? James chapter 2 verse 5 says, God chose it to be that way. This is a paradox. God choosing the poor to give his great riches to. Revelation chapter 2 verse 9 in one of the letters to the seven churches, gets at this well. He says, I know your tribulation and your poverty. I know your tribulation and your poverty. And then in parentheses, but you are rich. You're poor, but you're rich. And so although in James's day, the majority would have been poor materially, and in the West, in America, our law is certainly rich in comparison to what his first readers would have been experiencing. But what are these poor to do? To boast in their exaltation. To boast in Jesus. To boast in the cross of Christ that has forgiven them. You see, the poor brother or sister, they may have been born into a worldly position of a peasant, but they have been reborn into the position of being a child of the king. And this poverty is meant to do something for them. And our tendency when money is tight and circumstances are hard, is to think that God is simply keeping us in a tough spot for no reason. Like, why are you letting me, making me be poor? When in reality, God is keeping us there because keeping us there keeps us close to Him. Listen to what one author said. He said, if you are poor, you should boast in the fact that your circumstances are actually leading you to trust in God. And in the absence of physical resources, you are driven to boast <coughs> in your paradoxically rich status as a child of God. So God is using your poverty to lead you to Him, which then in turn causes you to boast in the fact that you are an heir of God, that you have been given childhood status from God. So the self-evaluation of the poor, they boast in their exaltation. They're driven to trust in God, despite not having earthly treasures. Their treasure is God. But what about the rich? 
Verses 10 to 11 give us a self-examination of the rich, which again is paradoxical. And you probably already know what I'm going to say, I'm sure, even though I haven't seen any of your tax returns that came in recently. I can say that for most all of us here, we would certainly fall into the camp of being rich in James's eyes. For sure, James would see the kinds of things that you and I own. He would see the calories that we consume every day. He would see the entertainments that we enjoy every day. And he would most certainly chalk that up to being fabulously wealthy. In a lot of ways, you and I have been so inundated by the wealth of our country that we often miss how rich we really are in comparison to so many countries and to so many throughout the history of the world. In in my travels, which have not been very extensive, I have seen poor. I have spent time with gypsies in Turkey. I have seen the slums in Peru. Yet we lose sight as Americans of what is actually poor because it's an out-of-sight, out-of-mind kind of thing. So it's one thing for you to keep up with the Joneses on your street who always seem to be outpacing you in what they're able to buy and what they're able to drive and what they're able to eat and how often they go out to eat and what they're able to upgrade their internet and their cable and everything else to. So it's one thing to try to keep up with them and you're so focused on what you don't have because they have so much, but you lose sight of what you do have that is enormously more than the rest of the world or people throughout history have ever had. Like as Americans, we truly live like kings and queens. And although we can't help where we have been born in terms of being born into America, which is in a lot of ways has been like hitting the lottery. What we can help and what we can do is to be sure to properly evaluate ourselves, not based off of the riches that God has given to us and that we're so accustomed to, but to base, to evaluate ourselves based off what we have in Jesus. Notice again, verse 9 into verse 10. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. And the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. And the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. So this is the the self-evaluation of the rich. How is he to interact with this money? Because the guy who, who is pursuing his money... Pursuing that luxury, James says he's going to fade away in the midst of his pursuits. The Bible has a lot to say about money. How we attain our money. Are we attaining our money through injustice? How are we using our riches? How we love riches? Jesus is clear that money can be our master. He says in Matthew 6, 24, no one can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or he will devoted, be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Can it get any more clear than that? You cannot serve God and money. Jesus says God is not going to share you with your money. So either God is going to be your master or and, and to the full, to the max, or he's not going to be your master at all. Desiring money, according to Paul, can destroy you. 
1 Timothy 6.9 But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. So you take money, and you make money your master. You be prepared for temptation and snares and senseless and harmful desires, and be prepared for ruin and destruction. But do you notice how that verse begins? But for those who desire to be rich. That's what happens to people who desire to be rich. So you have a desire for money. You desire to be rich, wealthy, and all of that. Why is my life spinning out of control? Why are temptations and snares all around me? You desire to be rich. Paul also says in 1 Timothy 1.10, famously, right? Money is the root of all kinds of evil. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Some of you have experienced craving. You have experienced addiction. And you know what it's like for that addiction to pull you toward it. So would be the love of money. Craving it and pulling you away from the faith. Money promotes pride. 1 Timothy 6.17 As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. So it is my job as your pastor to step into your life as those all of us who are rich Americans and to tell you, don't be haughty, don't trust in riches. But to follow after the word from James, for the rich to boast in their humiliation. You think of when Jesus said that It was easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into heaven. Or you think too famously of the rich young ruler. And Jesus tells him to sell it, to give it all away. And the rich young ruler, of course, he refuses to do it. And the reality is that the rich young ruler shows us that it's very difficult for a rich person to properly evaluate what he or she is and has in light of what really matters. Can you imagine standing face to face with Jesus And him telling you, get rid of it all and follow after me and saying no. Because the rich person, they have what the poorest person doesn't have. They have the massive amounts of land. They have the money in the bank account. They have the skill to make a great living for themselves. And so in the eyes of the world, when the world evaluates them, they say, wow. The world says, wow. They have something to boast in. Look at at all that they have. And so long as the world offers their stamp of approval and we feel good about what we have and we feel secure in what we have and we boast in what we have, we are in actuality not that much different than the rich young ruler. Yet how would we respond if Jesus said the same thing to us? Sell it all. Get rid of it all. And follow after me. Is it any real wonder when you consider how far Christianity and faith have drooped in our country. That we consider the state of Maine, two or three percent of the state of Maine is a professing evangelical or attend worship uh, somewhere. And let's even say less than that are genuine believers. Where we come down to a percent or two that believe out of a hundred people, one or two people might have faith. Is it any wonder that as our country over the last few hundred years has grown in wealth like crazy, that spirituality has come down, 
as though those two things are certainly related to one another. And I think that James's point here is that evaluating yourself based off of what you have is not biblical self-evaluation. Biblical self-evaluation for the rich person includes boasting in your humiliation. The rich man should boast in his humiliation because it should humble him that the Lord providentially placed him where he placed him. You should be humble to have been given what you have been given, Christian. The tendency of the rich man is to, to pound on his chest, right? And to talk about all that he has gained and accomplished and bought and how he sent his kids to the best schools and on and on. As though he was the one who got himself to that point. Yet I think what James is acknowledging here is that God is the one who allows rich people to be rich people. Therefore, they should be humbled. The rich man should exalt in God in his humiliation, knowing that he is not the one who brought himself to that position. He needs to view his riches, not from the worldly perspective, but from God's perspective. That what he has is from God, and what he has is from, and he is in God. He should use what he has for God. Because ultimately, all of it is going to burn anyway, isn't it? Look again at the metaphor in verse 10 and 11. Because like a flower of the grass, he's going to pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat, and it withers the grass. Its flower falls. And its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. So grass is beautiful. When it's watered in the summertime and it's taken care of, it's soft, it feels nice on your feet, looks beautiful to the eye, that that nice green after a winter. Flowers are beautiful. They, they attract us with their beauty. And frankly, flowers are so beautiful that they draw us so close to them. And then when we get close to them, we actually put our nose up to them and we start to smell the, gra- the, the flowers. And what a metaphor this is for the rich. That like a flower of the grass is going to wither away and die. Like flower, like grass, like beauty, it all goes away. So also... Will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits? Because his pursuit has not ultimately been God. His pursuit has been his pocketbook. And you cannot serve God in money. And none of us should expect to live here on earth and be obsessed with money and be obsessed with purchases and expect that we're going to enter into the kingdom of God. We will surely fade away in the midst of our pursuits as though we never even existed. Like the psalmist says, Be not afraid when a man becomes rich, when the glory of his house increases, for when he dies, he will carry away nothing. His glory will not go down after him. Or like we might say with our colloquialism, he who dies with the most toys still dies. Or we ask, have you ever seen a U-Haul on the back of a hearse? What consumes the rich and their trinkets, and the cars, and the houses, and the boats, and the second houses, and whatever else, it is all going to burn. This is why I beg you not to pursue what the world has to offer you. I beg you not to lay down your life for the American dream. I beg you not to work your fingers to the bone between 20 and 63, and then go waste the last 20 years on yourself. Why would you ever spend your life pursuing something that vanishes, That it all goes away. That it disappears. Who cares what you have? What you have in God is what matters. And so we say, well, I love God. 
But your pursuit of the things and how you boast in the things of the world, it says otherwise. And the danger of you fading away in the midst of this pursuit, like a dying flower or wilting grass, you are going to die. And all of it's going to burn after you. Have you understood the paradox of biblical self-evaluation? Don't get caught up in the riches and lift it up in pride. Exalt not in those things. Exalt in your humiliation. Be humbled in what God has given to you. Not lift it up. If the world praises you for what God has providentially given to you, that's not what matters. It's not what you'll ultimately be evaluated on by God. You're not going to get to heaven with a bunch of, with your bank account slip, right? Telling, showing God what you have. Hey, isn't this great? Look what I did. It's not going to care. So the poor are to evaluate themselves rightly. Let their experience as one of humble circumstances to drive them to exalt in what they have in Christ. The rich are to evaluate themselves rightly. Let their experience humble them and drive them to what they have in Christ. One of those things of which is what I think James brings up in James chapter 1 verse 12, a crown of life. Look at verse 12. This is the evaluation of God. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. I haven't brought it up uh, much this sermon as I did last week, but we're still in the context of trials. Like beginning of chapter one, count it all joy when you meet trials, knowing that it will produce steadfastness within you, which will produce that maturity in you that God wants. And then we moved on to asking for wisdom for the trial. When you're struggling and you need wisdom within the trial, you simply ask God. And then in our text this morning, he's giving us an illustration for a trial. The trial of being poor. So you see how all that funnels down. Kind of all joy when you meet trials. When you're in a trial, you ask for wisdom. And now let me give you an example of a trial. Being rich or poor. Yet in verse 12, he brings it all into focus and says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial and what is the reward for persevering through this life as a christian in trial and out of trial something so much better than riches the crown of life eternal life for those who would believe for those who love god so i'm going through life I'm living my life, doing whatever I want to do, and then suddenly God sets His love upon me, and I respond to Him back in love. The Bible says we love Him because He first loved us. So suddenly I'm 20 or 30 or 50 or 80, and I'm going through my life, doing my thing. He sets His love upon me, and I respond because He loves me. I'm going to love Him in return. And suddenly I'm following after Him. I'm doing His will. I'm obeying Him, submitting to Him. And the trials are coming. And what those trials are doing within me is it's producing that steadfastness, It's making me more like Jesus. It's making me holy. And finally the day comes when all of my trials in life start becoming a memory. My poverty on earth is becoming a memory. My riches on earth are becoming a memory. And why are they becoming a memory? Because the day has come when I am before Him and He has given me a crown of life. The book of Revelation says in chapter 2, Be faithful unto death, and I will give you a crown of life. Whether you're rich, 
whether you're poor, somewhere in between, be faithful unto death, and he will give you a crown of life. Blessed is the man or woman under trial, for when they have stood the test, when that test is over, he will receive a crown of life. Paul says something along these lines in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. For our momentary light affliction is producing for us an absolutely incomparable eternal weight of glory. That will get you going if you think about that. That whatever light momentary affliction that you're experiencing right now, that is doing something in you and for you. It is preparing you. It is preparing you for an incomparable eternal weight of glory. Why the trial? Take it from the man in 2 Corinthians who wrote it. Take it from the man who endured shipwreck and sleepless nights and beatings and persecution, all for the name of Jesus. That this momentary affliction is producing within us an absolutely incomparable eternal weight of glory. I'll take that. If I'm poor, I'll exalt in what I have coming in a crown of life as a lover of God. If I'm rich, I'll exalt in my humiliation, knowing that it's not what I have now that is of value, but of what I'll have when I stand before God. I'll have a crown of life. I'll have eternal life with Him, sharing in an absolutely incomparable, eternal weight of glory. That is what's real. That is what is lasting. That is what is not going to burn. When you think of a crown of life, don't think of a big gem-studded gold crown. Think of the laurel wreath. That, that wreath that the ancient Greece would put on their head after finishing the race, after being steadfast to the end. This would be the crown of life. This is what is real. This is what is lasting. And as a lover of God, I get to taste that now. And I'll taste it for all of eternity. And so will you. So when you consider what you have, Christian, let it not be based upon your poverty or your riches. Because what ultimately levels the playing field and what ultimately matters for those of us within the church and our brothers and sisters around the world, it's how God evaluates us. That He doesn't look at you and evaluate you based off of your poverty or riches. Instead, like when Jesus looked at Peter after His resurrection, He asked him three times, Do you love me? And the question for you is, Do you love God? Do you love God? Have you trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins? That you understand that you're a sinner. And not just a kind of sinner every now and then with white lies here and there, but that you're a sinner. And that you're in desperate need of redemption. That you are a slave in the slave market of sin. And you need somebody to come in and to redeem you from that place. Do you understand your position as one who is not within the kingdom of God? Because that is where you are. Following after Satan, dead in your trespasses and sins. And you desperately need him to breathe life into you. To open your eyes to believe in the gospel and to trust in him. Have you trusted in him? Are you a lover of God? So beloved of God. I urge you to not evaluate yourself based on who you are and what you have in the world, but evaluate yourself as a lover of God based off what you have in Christ. For starters, a crown of life. Let's pray.